WFUV Cityscape won't be heard this week, so we can bring you a special presentation as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign on combating drug addiction. Cityscape will return next week at this time. Drug addiction can tear families apart, and it's something that knows no boundaries. The disease has reached epidemic levels across the United States. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, news director of NPR affiliate station WFUV, located on the Rose Hill campus of Fordham University here in the Bronx. Each quarter, WFUV works to raise awareness of a particular issue through our Strike Accord campaign. Past campaigns have focused on everything from at-risk youth to family caregivers to the healing power of the arts. We're very pleased to be teaming up with BronxNet for our latest campaign focused on combating drug addiction. With me today to discuss the issue are Dr. Melissa Stein. She's the medical director of Montefiore's Division of Substance Abuse. Dr. Stein, hello. Hello. Blaine Nam is here representing the organization Road Recovery. The nonprofit is all about helping young people explore creative alternatives to drugs and alcohol. Blaine, hello to you. Hello. And also with us is Eve Goldberg. She's the founder of Big Vision Foundation. Eve, hello to you. Hi. Eve, I want to start with you. What's the mission of the Big Vision Foundation? Uh, the mission of Big Vision Foundation is to work with young adults in recovery, ages 18 to 30, after they've gone through rehab or living in sober living or even in an outpatient program, and just helping them get back to living a normal life, learning to live sober again, learning to have fun in their sobriety. And we just, we, what we do is we have sober, fun, sober events pretty much every week, and we're creating a community of these young adults where they can hang out together and feel accepted and not feel judged, and we really work to erase the stigma that's associated with this disease. Let's talk about the stigma for a moment. What stigma is there associated to addiction? There's a huge stigma. I can give you just a perfect example of what's been going on now. We're at a point where we're looking for a space where we can build this clubhouse the Big Vision Clubhouse where they can come and hang out like at any time and have our activities there. And every time we find a space and we're fine with the price, you know, we, we hear in advance that they're okay, the landlord is okay with it for your usage. And we get close to actually signing, you know, making a deal on it and then we, we get silence on the other end and then they say, no, we don't think it's going to work, we don't think that it's, it's right for your usage. And we say, what does that mean, not right for our usage? We're, we're planning on having sober activities here, first of all. We're not going to be having wild parties. These are for people who are trying to you know, build a, their lives up again and do something and find their passions and just live their lives you know, just without substances. And the second they hear you know, addiction, addict, substance abuse, whatever it is, it, it changes everything, even though they're accepting and understanding because my story is that I lost my son to an overdose three years ago. So that, you know, they, they have, you know, compassion. They, they're, they're sad for me. They have like this look on their face, but then all of a sudden, you know, they think about it and they're like, no, we, we don't want those people here. So I've never in my life felt so uh, rejected, but I've, I've found that you know, along the way. And that said, was it hard for you to admit initially that your son died of an overdose? No, not at all. Not at all. I, for him, for Isaac, his challenges were being able to talk about it. So he was ashamed. And this was, he died, it's going to be four years in January, and it was different. We weren't talking about it as much back then. How old then. was he? He was 23. And it was, it was, he was so ashamed of, of himself that 
he he wouldn't talk about it. He just you know would isolate. He didn't he whatever. It was just it was it was a big it was a big shame for him. But when he died, you know, at his funeral, we all got up and we spoke about it. Isaac's best friend, who's in recovery for five years, he got up and he talked about Isaac's addiction. He talked about all of his struggles, and there were a lot of a lot of you know my good friends and family obviously knew, but there were a lot of people in the room who were like you know came through other members of my family. There were a lot of people there at the funeral, and I can you know I, afterwards I found that these people were kind of shocked. They didn't know about it and didn't expect us to talk about it, but where so many people came over to me you know at a certain point and said thank you. Thank you for talking about it because so many people are affected by this. And whether it's a cousin or an uncle or a brother or a next door neighbor, there's nobody that doesn't know somebody who's struggling with it, who has died from this disease. There is just, it's, it's hitting everyone everywhere. And, you know, it doesn't matter what socioeconomic background you come from, it, it can happen to anybody. So, you know, we would just came out with it. And, and then when I started Big Vision, obviously I speak about it every day. And so... You know, uh, and to me, there should be no no shame. No, d- we have to get rid of the stigma because it's really keeping a lot of people from getting better. Dr. Sun, I think that when a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot, when many people hear that someone's addicted, they put the blame on them. You're a weak person. You gave in. You couldn't handle the life, uh, the stresses of life. So help us to understand addiction. So addiction, it's, it's a brain disease. And... Uh, there's a lot of different components that play into that. Um, I think one of them is uh, genetic predisposition, and genes have been isolated that are associated with different forms of addiction, nicotine addiction, opiate addiction. So there's scientific progress being made in that front. Um, Then another component is uh, the environment. So in our culture, Substance use, it's not widely accepted, but it's not shocking for adolescents or young adults to experiment. Um, And in some communities, drug use is accepted as a form of social uh, interaction. And certainly, if you're looking at alcohol as a drug, that's pretty widely accepted in our culture as an acceptable um, kind of drug to use. So that's another component. And then I think there also is the individual's response to the drug and the drug's uh, effect on the brain. And these drugs are incredibly powerful chemicals that really, they affect us on uh, the most basic molecular level of our biology. And when people use them, they affect them very powerfully and they feel really good usually. So they're very compelling, I think, initially. And, and once people really start using, their brains change and stopping becomes, can become extremely challenging for some people. What's your role specifically here in the Bronx when it comes to this issue? Tell us about your work. Right. Okay, so I, I'm uh, the medical director of Montefiore's Division of Substance Abuse. We have three sites where we have uh, different types of programs. Our largest program is our opioid treatment program. So that's a program which serves about 3,000 patients across the Bronx. Um, And we treat patients with opiate uh, addiction using mostly methadone, but also buprenorphine. Um, In those programs, we provide primary care to the patients also, uh, as well as some psychiatric services. Um, There are counseling services available. 
and again, the methadone or buprenorphine. Uh, we also, at two of our sites, we have uh, next steps programs, which are um, intensive outpatient drug treatment programs. So some of our patients from the opioid treatment program go to those, but also we treat patients with other different types of addiction, um, with groups and family therapy. Um, and we also now have a new program called Project Rising that's targets, uh, that's a special program for young people aged 14 to 24 who suffer from addiction. I think folded into all of our programs is a little bit of um, kind of helping people to start doing sober kinds of activities and thinking about other ways to spend their time that don't rely on or involve drugs at all. So currently I'm really excited about some new arts programming that we're, we're doing and, um, you know, but mostly my experience has been using methadone and buprenorphine to help people stop using opiates. Talking about arts, let's bring in our gentleman here from Road Recovery, Blaine, let's talk about Road Recovery because you incorporate music, specifically the music industry, to help at-risk youth so they don't go down a bad road. Sure. Yeah, Road Recovery harnesses the uh, industry, uh, the um, entertainment industry, and brings arts. It's not treatment, but you know, right after treatment, typically, when people come out, they'll, they'll come to us and we'll work with, work with them and um, have them with peer support and doing creative projects to engage them in a positive way, much like Big Vision was offering activities and things. We do it with the arts, uh, with music, uh, poetry, even design or album design, photography. Uh, it's pretty broad. And uh, I think it builds a network for, for young people 14 to 25 to, to really embrace their recovery as an exciting, fun, adventurous thing. And I think as a, as a young person, in recovery, it's hard because I think that's why maybe they might have lashed out in the first place because it's sexy and exciting, but so is the arts. And there's a way to harness that energy in a positive way that doesn't do harm to your body, your mind, your spirit. And uh, I think that's really our vision is to kind of give them a space for that, a safe space with peer mentors to be able to reach their goals. And I've seen it. I've seen it in action. It's quite incredible. How much is it about allowing these individuals to meet people who went through it who can talk from personal experience, who are on the other side of it. I mean, it's all about that. Their peer, uh, their peer mentors are people who've been through the experiences. Uh, some of the musicians they sometimes meet, um, and or celebrities that they, they sometimes meet, um, <coughs> have also been through it. Um, I, I wouldn't say that's the primary focus. I think it's a, it's a wonderful benefit, um, but it, it's about kind of building that amongst themselves and amongst peers. And... Uh, Having that, I mean, when you have an experience like that and then you can go to school or college, why, why go in with the other crowd? You know, peer pressure just kind of becomes obsolete um, and you're just having these experiences and you want to be part of something like this. The young folks who work with Road Recovery are actually producing their own music, right? Even Absolutely. going as far as putting on concerts, am I right? Yeah, everybody puts on a, a concert or a recording. Uh, it's kind of the goal. So it has peer support, and then they also have business meetings where they have their own autonomy, and they discuss what gigs they're going to take or not. Um, so if they're going to play a treatment center or do an outreach event or a, whatever, whatever they're getting invited to, and it's some amazing events, um, they can choose as a, as a group. The Type 2 band chooses whether they want to take that event, and it's seriously their choice. Um, and they discuss it, and they have you know, reasons why they would do something or wouldn't, um, and they learn kind of conflict resolution, how to handle different situations, and they uh, they go out and record and 
and work with professionals all around the world. Who are among the musical artists that you have worked with and continue to work with? Um, they have an album on, uh, I think it's Spotify, with uh, Duran Duran. Um, Taking me back to my youth. <laughs> 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 they have some, some other things in the past, Slash, um, Peter Frampton. I mean, it's From the Guns list. and Roses. Oh, yeah. Slash. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the list goes on. It's, it's epic. I mean, I, I, I've been with the organization, I think, six or eight months. I've already attended a, a private event for you, too. I mean, it's, it's over the moon, and it's not all about that, you know. To me, those are overwhelming experiences, and they're great. Um, it's the community. It's the community that these young people have. Um, those are the benefits. They become really uh, mature, humble young people that just are going to turn into amazing adults with long-term recovery. Uh, I think it gives them the... The possibility gives them the vision to be able to see that that's possible. And they have mentors to, to talk to and to go to to kind of figure out how, how do they get there? Like, mm-hmm. how do you do it? And, yeah, it just seems much more, it's hope. Dr. Stein, how challenging is it for someone suffering from addiction, even someone who's gone through treatment, to maintain a life of sobriety after that? What are the challenges there? Uh, I think there are many, many challenges. Um, and from my standpoint, addiction is a chronic disease. So people, they do go through treatment, but in my opinion, treatment should never really end. Um, sometimes people can be off of medication, but they they should always be at least seeing their doctor or going to groups or in some way taking care of that part of themselves um, that has has uh, been treated for addiction or continues to be treated for addiction. Um, In my experience, in particular, uh, for people who have um, had some time of sobriety, more challenging times are sort of the highs and lows of life, especially the lows is from from my experience again. Um, The death of a loved one, the loss of a job um, are some of the low points, like examples. But then also uh, great celebratory events. Sometimes people can sort of forget momentarily or think, oh, well, just have this one drink, um, and then things can spiral out of control. So I think either direction. You've talked to us more about Isaac's story and how Isaac went through treatment, but yet, unfortunately, was not able to uh, to maintain that afterwards, that sobriety. Yeah. Um, so Isaac was in treatment a couple of times. I mean, he was back and forth. Um, and from treatment centers, and then he was in uh, an outpatient program. He was lived at a sober living facility. And it was the first time he went to treatment, he went right back to college. He was there for 30 days, and he was desperate to get back to school and just get back to, like, living his normal life. And he was in a fraternity, and they actually let him go back, which, I mean, I can't, I can't say that, you know, it's the fault of the treatment center, but... He should never have gone back because he called me up three days later. He was like cowering under his bed and hysterical crying and just said, I can't do this. You know, get me out of here because, you know, what happens on college campuses, especially in a fraternity, I mean, the drinking and the, the, you know, the drugs were rampant there. And so he just couldn't, he couldn't do it. So he came home and then he ended up going back. And it was just, you know, it was one challenge after another for him. And um, at the end, he had been in sober living and moved home, moved back with me for six weeks. He was, he never looked better. 
He just, you know, you can see the way he carried himself. He had gotten a job. He was exercising. He was kind of doing all the right things. And we got, he got an apartment. He was planning on moving out. And then he said to me, he said, I'm never going to do drugs again because I know how quickly I can go down that dark road and I never want to go there again. And of course, I thought to myself, oh, you know, thank God, that's, mm -hmm. that's it. That's what I needed to hear. Yeah. It was in like, like that, you know, looked great. Everything was going well. And within days, he was gone. I mean, it happened that fast. You know, I had really had no idea that he was using again. Um, and, you know, I, I found him unresponsive um, in his bedroom, which backed up to my bedroom. Not like, you know, this happened in some random place. He wasn't on his own. He wasn't with a bunch of friends. He was right there in my home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he ended up being in the hospital for six weeks in a coma. And, you know, I mean, he, he was gone from the minute we found him. They did use Narcan on him. Unfortunately, it was too late. It was too little too late. Um, then, um, you know, but that was um, Isaac's struggles. The reason I started Big Vision is because his biggest struggle, or one of his biggest struggles, was really that, like, trying to feel normal again. And he just, he couldn't f feel like a part of society, like a part of anything. So, you know, I, that's what spoke to me. And I woke up one day and I said to my husband, you know, I have my big idea. I know what I want to do. You um, started Big Vision so soon after Isaac's death. How did you muster that strength? You know what? There's, there's different kinds of people in the world. And un un unless you experience a tragedy like this, unless you go through something like this, you have no idea the strength that you have. You don't know the kind of person you're going to be. I could have been that person that was still, that's still in bed, you know, that can't get out of bed, that can't do anything. I found that, you know, I needed to do something. So, you know, we had the seven-day mourning period of Shiva when Isaac passed away. And every person in that room, I said to them, I said, I'm going to do something to make meaning out of his life. And people said to me, I'll help you. You know, mm. you need me, call on me. And I went back in my room every night and I wrote a list. And I took down every name of someone who said they would help me. And I said, you know what? I'm going to reach out. This is the first time in my life I ever need to do this. I'm reaching out to them. And I just, he died in January. And January, one year later, I had the first meeting, called all these people. I had 50 people. And we sat down and we, we came up with, you know, we're doing this. And then we had our first event and... Uh, I didn't know if anybody would even show up. I, what did I know? I don't know anything. I've been in a family business my whole life. I don't know the first thing about a nonprofit. I don't know, for, I don't know about, about this, but there's clearly a need for it. What um, kinds of events are you organizing? So we do everything. Like we're the, you know, we do everything. So I do, we do indoor go-karting. We do rock climbing. We do ice skating. We do hikes. We do trapeze. We do bowling. We do knitting. I do acting classes, you know, songwriting. Literally anything. If someone says to me, oh, my God, let's do, we want to do laser tag. I'm like, okay, <laughs> call them up. Let's do, and all our activities, they're all free also. So, you know, we, it's, it's, it's kind of a fun thing to do. I have, you know, two girls who work for me. One's in recovery. The other one is just my, my right hand. She helps organize all the events. And we just do it, you know. They, they ask for something, and we're like, okay, fine, go-karting. We'll do go-karting. Laser tag, let's do it, you know. And, and people show up, you know, and, and they're starting to get to know each other. And, you know, see, there are familiar faces and friendships are being formed. And it's really... You know, it's becoming a community, which is really my dream. You know, that's really what I want, that, that they can feel accepted. And, you know, there's never any drugs or alcohol. I won't go to a place where there's a bar. You know, we did bowling for um, 
Halloween, we had a bowling party because that's also a tough time. Mm-hmm. There's so much drinking. So we did sober Halloween. There happens to be a bar in this bowling alley, but it's a bowling alley that's very old school. And the bar is kind of like a dark, uninviting bar. So that's why I, choo- I will only do it there. I won't go to one of these places that's all about the bar and not about the bowling, mm-hmm. which unfortunately in our life, so much is about the drinking. It's like unavoidable. It's, it's, really, it's really challenging. You know, Blaine, oftentimes the music industry and drinking seem to go hand in hand. It's often glamorized in the music industry. So how do you communicate to young people that you can be creative? You can't even be in the music industry without drugs and alcohol. Well, I mean, I think it's also something they have to want to do. Um, it's, it's hard to, 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 you know, make anyone want to do it. But, I mean, it's, it's exciting to be around that and to be um, connecting by making music with other people, uh, be learning new things, building a community, and also having access to people in the entertainment industry that have also gone through it. Because you can see, I mean, I think we all have with different performers over the years, and more notably with the opiate crisis, kind of what happens to people who, who go that route. It doesn't seem to end well sometimes in their professional careers. And, uh, you know, the people who are lucky enough to, you know, get treatment and recover, they surround themselves with positive people. And um, when they're out there in their business and they're making lots of money, it's hard. I mean, you're, you're a lucky one to get out. So I think uh, our young people are smarter than we think sometimes. And, I mean, I get it. You know, they're, they, they found a way to connect. And the way to connect might have been drugs and alcohol at one point. But when offered another way, they'll gladly take it. Dr. Stein, what would you say is your biggest challenge in the medical field helping people overcome addiction? Well, fortunately, we have good medications at this point, um, and research is ongoing, so I think that's an area in which uh, we're doing pretty well. Um, One thing is just getting people to treatment. Um, So I think one of our more recent goals from a public health front has been the distribution of naloxone, um, which is Narcan, which is uh, a medication that reverses opioid overdose. Um, so as much to the extent that it's possible, we're trying to have Narcan in the community so that if people do overdose, there's, they have a greater chance of making it. Um, after that, I think stigma is a big obstacle, mm-hmm. getting people to treatment, getting people to say, I need the help, um, and just the acceptability of medication-assisted therapy, which at this point is the most effective kind of therapy that we have for opiate addiction. Um, But there's great stigma against that. I mean, I have patients who don't want to tell their family members. They don't want to tell their friends. They don't want to tell their doctors and, you know, that they're on methadone or buprenorphine because there's there's stigma and shame associated with that. So I think overcoming that. Um, I think helping people to build productive lives once they're making a shift from a life that's sent often has become centered around drug use and moving to center it around other more positive healthy things um, and in in my particular work I because I'm a general internist I treat people's health problems so I'm working we're working very hard in our system to treat a lot of hepatitis C we have many patients who have HIV Uh, We have patients with cancers that are related to their substance use. So, you know, just a lot of the health-related consequences of addiction. How long have you been working here in the Bronx specifically? So I 
<clears throat> I came to the Bronx uh, to work in 1999. I did my residency in internal medicine at Montefiore Medical Center, and since 2003, I've worked in the Division of Substance Abuse. So what would you say are the biggest differences between the 1999 to now when it comes to addiction? What are the biggest changes that you've seen? So I do, I, I think that we're seeing more opioid overdoses um, with the influx of fentanyl into the heroin supply in New York. Uh, the drug on the street is more powerful. People often don't know what they're getting. Um, and so they're, they're at great, much greater risk. Uh, so that's one thing. I think that um, pa the patients who I'm seeing in my program now are younger. Uh, there's greater diversity in many ways in terms of socioeconomic uh, class. More, probably more, pa more of my patients work now, um, and they're they're younger. Um, and many more people now are coming after having been depend become dependent initially after exposure to pills, not heroin. When I first started, the patients almost all had started with heroin use. Now, of our new intakes, I would say probably a third maybe started with a prescription that, that, that they got, mm -hmm. or sometimes from pills they took or borrowed from someone else. If you mentioned that your son went back to the fraternity, should it be non-negotiable for someone going through recovery that you have to cut off all of your old friends, all of your old drug and alcohol um, drinking friends, your drug using friends, your drinking friends? I mean, I think it's very challenging if you're 20-something years old to cut off all of your old relationships. Hopefully, you obviously those friends that you were using with when you were in your, you know, the heaviest, you know, period of usage, I guess, or, you know, if you were, you know, I'm saying if there were just friends that maybe you drank casually with or smoked pot with, maybe that's different. Obviously, those people, if they could be understanding and, you know, be able to hang out with you and not use substances, that's fine. Obviously, anybody who's really, like, in the throes of addiction is not going to be able to hang out with you. But, like, Isaac had a friend who I spoke to after Isaac passed away, and when we talked about Big Vision, he said to me, you know, we talked about this clubhouse, and he said, listen, you know, if Isaac had said to me, hey, let's go play some, let's go shoot some pool over the Big Vision clubhouse, you know, I would have gone with him. I don't mm -hmm. care. I don't need to drink. I don't need to go to a bar. You know, so if you have friends who are supportive and can handle being in a, which, honestly, if you can't handle being in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an environment with no drugs and alcohol, you probably have a problem. <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> so it, that, that's an issue. So hopefully you have friends who, who just, you know, drink casually and, and can be with you. And those are people, as long as you're honest with your friends and let them know where you're at, I think it could be okay. Do you but think it's any harder to recover in a city like New York because of all of the access that we have? There's so many bars on every street here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Isaac and I, when he was early in his recovery, just a couple of months, we spent probably an hour walking around the city. Trying, it was in the summer. We were trying to find a place just to go out for dinner. And he was, he, we couldn't find a restaurant that didn't have this huge bar scene spilling out into the street. We finally like, found this little, like, hole-in-the-wall sushi place, and that's where we had dinner. You know, we just, every place we went, he said, nah, not there, not there. You know? So, yeah, it's tough. But then if you go to a place that's very isolated, it's also very tough. So there, it has its own challenges. But New York is definitely, it, it's certainly, it's difficult in, yes, in many ways. We're running out of time, so let me ask you, what's next for Big Vision? What's the vision for Big Vision? 
the vision is to continue doing what we're doing, but to have this actual physical space. Um, that's really, it's always been my dream is to have that, to have like this, you know, sober community center, and it's going to happen. My husband and I have been looking at spaces. We, you know, hopefully we, we found something, but I never like to talk about it because of all the experiences that I've had in the past. You never know. So, you know, th- that's, that's my goal, and just to have activities on a regular basis and help as many of these young adults as we can. That's, that's my goal. Blaine, final thoughts? My final thoughts are that Road Recovery is going to be celebrating 20 years soon, and uh, it's, it's really helpful to have seen it. I've been involved with them for around 10 years, just kind of looking at things, seeing over that time what a support network and a peer support meetings do for young people, how they can kind of have those conversations about... How do I drop my friends? Should I drop my friends? I don't want to lose my friends. But then they're all going through it at the same time. Mm-hmm. So they're not alone. It's all about, you don't want to be alone. You want to be able to negotiate these really complicated, terrifying things to figure out how can I get to where I want to go. Um, so 20 years, I just, I'm, I'm excited to just be involved, and I can't wait to what the next project is. And you know, maybe it'll be something with rap. I don't know. <laughs> we'll change it up. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Stein, you get the last word. Okay, so I guess we want to, at the Division of Substance Abuse, continue to serve our current patients and, you know, help everyone who comes to us and just really expand our reach in the Bronx so that people know that medication-assisted therapy works. If they're really suffering, that we're here to help them. Well, that's all the time we have for this special collaboration between public radio station WFUV and BronxNet, focusing on efforts to combat drug addiction. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Melissa Stein, Blaine Nam, and Eve Goldberg. Thank you to all of you. For more information about the programs they're involved with or to simply find out more about WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, visit WFUV.org slash Strike Accord. I'm George Borarki. Thanks so much for being with us. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.